Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Well, it's June. The sun's out, the surf's up, and who wouldn't want to be gone for the summer? Surfing USA. Unfortunately, here at The Rest is History, myself, Tom Holland, my partner, Dominic Sandbrook, we're stuck in England. We're a long way from the surf and the golden beaches of California. But all the more reason, Dominic, I think, to do an episode on the history of this remarkable corner of the world uh, and a place that you you really love, don't you? I do, actually. I know um, my persona on The Rest is History is sort of a grump. Curmudgeonly cynical. The yeah, yeah, the Grinch. Yeah. But I do love California. When I get off the plane, um, I've been a few times, and every time I sort of get, you know, it's that utter cliche of the sun shining and, you know, the sense of possibility and uh, open horizon and all that sort of stuff. I mean, I absolutely am a sucker for all that. I suppose, I think actually a lot of English people are, aren't they? It's uh, in a way because it's certainly within England. We project it to ourselves as the sort of absolute antithesis of the closed, claustrophobic, grumpy, cynical world that we normally inhabit. But I think for everybody, I mean, you know, outside America, but maybe even within America as well. Within America, yeah. Because it's the dream factory, because you've got Hollywood, you've got TV and everything. Yeah. To go to California, even if you've never been there, you kind of feel, oh, this is all very familiar. Yeah, I think there's that. If you ever watch Mad Men, and um, those of our listeners who watch Mad Men, he's in Don Draper, the main character. He's in his office in in you know Manhattan, and everything's going wrong, and his personal life is a disaster. And then every now and again, he gets on the plane and he goes to California, and he too, he's the one man there in a suit, and they're all sipping cocktails around pools, and you get a real sense of how even in the fifties, that image of California as the sort of paradise as the world where you shed all your earthly cares and you, you know, the kind of kingdom of heaven. There you go, Tom, there's a gift to you. Um, well, but one I'm not going to pick up because the reputation of California is kind of a place almost where you go, not just to escape, you know, English drizzle, but history itself, the burden yeah. of history that you have yeah. in, in other parts of the world. So we've got a question um, from Chilton Hundred who says, is California where history goes to die? Well, it's always seemed to me, and he's speaking as an American, like a strange historyless place drifting along without any grasp on its own past, curious, curiously agnostic to its own self sense of self. Well, that may be true, but uh, you are actually very interested in the history of California, aren't you? And I'm imagining that you were going to say there's an awful lot of history. Yeah. And actually, the weird thing is that that sense of his- that sense of being rootless and untethered by history is itself a historical construct. So that's kind of 20th century California, the suburban state and the sense of it being plastic as people have sort of entirely invented and that's itself a product of history but of course california does have a fascinating history um incredibly interesting so do you know tom where the name california comes from i've I've come prepared with a great uh i i think it comes from the name of a a fairy princess in some spanish romance or something exactly so califia lady califia queen exactly something like that dead right so the the book is called the deeds of esplandian and it's uh, by Garcia Ordones de Montelio, published in 1510. So it very is. early. So yeah, it was very early. Apparently, supposedly the most popular Spanish romance before Don Quixote. Um, and uh, there's a battle at Constantinople or there's something going on at Constantinople and a black Amazons arrive and their, their leader is Queen Calafia. Yeah. And this oh. idea of the sort of slightly 
Yeah, this idea of the being, it's slightly El Dorado-ish, this land of gold, this land of possibility. And people, and when the Spaniards land in California, Baya California as it's now, the Mexican bit in 1533, they name it after the, they name it after the story. So right at the beginning of California's history. Well, it, there's, there's legend and storytelling and, and all that stuff. I, I can push the history of California much further back than that. Please do. Okay. So the first time I went to LA, landed there, went to a, a kind of brilliant James Elroy type hotel. Um, and the first place that I wanted to visit was in La Brea, where they have tar pits. And in prehistoric times, mastodons, dire wolves, um, saber-toothed tigers would go to these tar pits and they would sink in and they're perfectly preserved. And wow. as a child, I had a, a an American La Brea tar pit kit. And you put it together <laughs> and there was kind of mastodon and everything. And a smilodon, which is actually the, the Californian fossil. So nice. all the state, all the states in America yeah. have fossils, which I think is a brilliant. I didn't thing. know that. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so California is, is, is Smilodon, the, uh, the saber-toothed tiger. Anyway, I, I, this isn't a natural history show, but <laughs> the reason I mention it is that, um, there was one human who was found in these tar pits. Uh, and she, she seems to have lived about 7,000 BC, something like that. So 9,000 years ago. And she had a, a wound to her skull. So she has been named as um, possibly California's first known homicide victim. It's such a theme of Californian history, isn't it? Sort of homicide investigations. Yeah. Absolutely. So we've talked about the surf and the sun and all the kind of upbeat stuff. But California is also obviously famous for its serial killers and its dodgy cops and yeah. all that kind of stuff as well. So I'm sure we'll come on to that. Anyway, I just throw that out that, that perhaps we can trace the beginnings of California all the way back to 7000 B.C. Yeah, that's great. And actually, you know what, Tom? I mean, this is so interesting, isn't it, that people say, well, California's got no history. And you often hear that of America generally. People will say, particularly in the old world, they'll say, well, America has no history. And of course, that itself is what the, you know, Americans wanted to believe that they were starting anew, that they were leaving yeah. history behind them. And as those tarpets remind us, you know, you, you, it does have a history. And actually, what's been written out of the history. So, for example, you don't think of California typically as a place where a lot of Native Americans lived, but of course they did. I think some historians think as perhaps a third of the entire Native American population lived in what is now roughly California, which it's a story that you don't often hear because you hear all about the, the, the plains and stuff, but you don't hear about the Californian so what's, Indians. So what's the story of dispossession, which I guess is also the story of, of settlement? It's, just, it's the Spanish. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't quite fit. No, because the Spanish, see, what's really interesting is people start arriving in California in the 16th century. So Francis Drake is one yes, of, of course. people. Yes. Francis Drake arrives at uh, Point Reyes and they have a, a service using the Book of Common Prayer, the first ever Book of Common Prayer service in the Americas. So he arrives in the Golden Hind and then he goes off again. And there's no real attempt to settle in California by the, by the English. And the Spanish basically use California as a way station. So it's, you know, to think that we live, we think we live in an age of globalization now, but their, their galleons are going from Manila in the Philippines to New Spain, Mexico, Mexico City. And California is the place where they stop. So they, they build kind of, they have a, a port, I think it's San Francisco, this huge bay. And later on, in the 18th century, they established the famously missions, but they're done by the Jesuits. It's not, it's not the sort of the authorities in, in Mexico that's doing that. So it's kind of a privatized bit almost of New Spain run right. by and the, the Jesuits. And one of them, one of them who was leading the mission got his statue got toppled, I think, last yeah, it's been year. Canceled. Among, yeah, he got cancelled. 
So I guess that, that that's a kind of focusing the tension between the two narratives of, of European settlement as a, as a process of bringing civilization to the wilderness and the Native American perspective that this is a, you know, a process of of depredation and theft. although i think actually much as you might beat up on the the missionaries now um at well, that, i wouldn't but well <laughs> though you wouldn't um <laughs> at that point i think you know there has been an argument that there's a devastation through disease and all that stuff but but settlers haven't arrived in big numbers at that stage so in the sort of the 16th 17th even a lot of the 18th century there really aren't many people at all. California is a long way from Mexico, from the sort of the set and, and from Peru. So they're the places where most the Spanish kind of conquistadors go. It's obviously a colossally long way from the east coast of the what's now the United States. So if you're arriving from England, you don't keep going and go all the way to California. And actually, it's lot for a long time there are very very few settler people. So up to the point where the Mexicans get independence from Spain. That what there is, there's not, there aren't towns. There but are. It's really has- odd because it's such an amazing place. Yeah, but so much of the Americas is so amazing. Why do you need to go to the furthest bit away? I mean, that's. I was thinking about that. You know, why why don't people settle it earlier? And the answer is surely obvious. That you know, at the point you arrive to to escape the new world, you know, some people settle there, and then some people go on further. So they go to start going to like what's now the Midwest in the United States, or they go to other bits of Mexico. But California is still hundreds of miles beyond that. Why would you? But it's you named keep going? after a beautiful medieval princess. I mean, what's yeah, not there to is like? this sort of and and there's I, there's lots of there's lots of Native Americans there. Of course, there's lots of resources, but there's lots of resources everywhere. Why do you need to go on another thousand miles? Yeah, I suppose um, so. So when so, so when do when do when do um, English speakers start moving in? I think not until the I don't know the what the are gold rush. Uh, in a big way, not until the gold rush eighteen forty eight. I mean, there have been English speakers arriving. Um, so Mexico gets independence in 1821. Um, so the Spanish Empire basically breaks up at the end of the Napoleonic Wars. Mexico gets independence and you have this period where you've got a Mexican California. But again, there's not many people there. And the American, American settlers arrive. So English speakers and you get Russians arriving. So they built a place called uh, Fort Ross. Um, so that's the lowest bit of the sort of Russian expansion into the Americas that you've got in Alaska. So the southernmost point, but they don't do it in a big way. And then um, the Americans sort of take it at roughly the same time they take Texas. So the Spanish, so the um, Mexican-American War at, at the end of the 1840s. And, and what's interesting about that, Tom, is that you've got all the action in kind of Texas and stuff that people are familiar with, the kind of the Alamo and these sort of scenes, you know, the sort of um, – uh, you've got, you've got sort of the, the Mexicans and you've got Native Americans and you've got American settlers and there's this period of intense violence. But in California, it's much more small scale. I was only reading today a description of the moment when they, they're raising their, their famous kind of grizzly bear flag and, and claiming independence from the Mexicans. And it'll sort of, it's talking about the, the great standoff. And basically everybody in the state arrives, they ride over the horizon. It's like 20 people or something. I mean, tiny, tiny numbers. I remember when I went to LA being very struck by the fact that apparently LA joined the union before the state of California was created. Yeah. So kind of a few months before or something. But it's all a very shambolic process yes. because it's being done by kind of, um, you know, pe- these guys who are kind of freebooters. They're kind yeah. of operating independently. There's not, it, there's a, the main person is a, an officer, a, a sort of Napoleon. He sees himself as a new Napoleon. He's called uh, John Charles Fremont. 
Kit Carson is his chief scout, who once a very famous figure in sort of Cowboys and Indians films. Um, but they're, you know, they're quite small. It's all quite small scale. There's not that many people there. So when LA gets incorporated as a municipality, its population is, I think, 1600. Yeah, tiny. So that tiny. That counts um, as a metropolis in those I days. I mean, what's but, that like? A, it's not even a small town, is it? It's no, basically no. a village. Kind of um, village, yeah. So then I assume what swells it is the gold rush. Yeah, and the gold rush is the gold rush is a great story, but it's a terrible story as well. So um, a man called Sutter, who basically does everything, because there's so few people in California, he seems to do everything in California in the 1840s. He's building a sawmill in what's now Sacramento, on the Sacramento River. And one of his workers, uh, a man called James Wilson Marshall, He's sort of faffing around in the stream and he finds these nuggets, shiny oh. nuggets. And they, yeah, they fiddle with them for a bit and he bangs them between rocks. And then it's exactly that. Supposedly he shouted Eureka, but I don't think that's Surely he shouted Yeehaw. Yes. Yeah, so I don't think that's ultimately very plausible. But the stats are astounding. So in 1848, do you know how many people were in California in the whole state? No, not many. Te- I'm guessing. Fewer than, fewer than 10,000. Okay. So yeah, I mean, tiny smaller than the population of a market town uh, in the whole state. And in three years, more than a quarter of a million people turn up. Under their own steam, right? Yeah. They're so it's all wagons steam. and... Exactly that. There aren't trains at this point. It's wagons. It's arriving. I assume some are arriving by ship. Their San Francisco is sort of transformed into this huge port because it's exporting all the gold. Um, they're young men. They're the 49ers, you know, hence the San Francisco 49ers yeah, yeah. Um, team. Well, do you know the, the most feared criminals in the gold rush to California? Uh, no, but you clearly do. I do. Uh, they were apparently Australian. Oh, well, that doesn't surprise me at all. The Sydney Ducks, they were called. And also a load of French people. Oh, that's always a bad sign. Very, um, you know, unusual. Apparently 28,000 French speakers ended up in the gold rush. And I've been reading James Bell. I came across this quite coincidentally, not thinking I would be reading about California. But I'm reading James Bellich's Replenishing the Earth, the Settler Revolution and the Rise of the Anglo World. And he um, is talking about the, the kind of the racial hierarchies in the gold rush. It's a very racist. Yeah. It's an inclusively racist society, he calls it. But if you're in, so, you know, you can be English, Irish, Scandinavian, German, you're treated as honorary Americans. Everyone else isn't. So that would obviously include Native Americans, Black Americans, Mexicans, but also apparently the French. So the French were that's interesting. Isn't were it? treated very, very badly. Um, in, but in, some uh, of those people must be coming from Quebec, I suppose. Yeah. So half um, of them, I think, were coming from Quebec, and half yeah. from from, uh, from France proper. But yeah, so, there's an there's an astronomical murder rate during the gold. You know, you, basically the way you know you you find a load of gold and then somebody kills you for it is is how is how it works. And especially if you're Hispanic or you're Chinese or you're or French, yeah, or French as you as yeah. you have um, yeah. discovered. Um, and in fact, I think particularly they basically a lot of the people who are pitching up have no experience in mining at all. So they don't know what they're doing. They just fancy some gold. And the people that they get to do a lot of the actual hard graft are people who have been doing mining in South America. So they're Chileans or Peruvians and they do all the hard work and then they get killed and people, get take, off. All, yeah, people take all their gold. And, and also, has it begun? So it has continued, I guess. You could I, well, you could say, yeah, this say. is a kind of, there's always this thing with America, with all American history, isn't there, of an original sin. And you could argue that there is an original, you know, because this is also the point at which the Indian population really plummets. 
So the Indians are just exterminated. They're used as child labor. Consciously, consciously exterminated. Um, pretty I mean, is consciously. This a kind of conscious. They're used as slaves. They're just used as disposable cannon fodder to 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 work in the mines. So after um, the Civil War, uh, what what are we talking? We're talking eighteen between eighteen forties and eighteen eighties or so. Right. So so effectively, they're being used as slaves even after slavery has been abolished. Well, I mean, you can argue. I mean. This I, yeah, is I know, a huge, I know. This yes, is a huge question. You might well yes, like say the same about African Americans, mind yeah. you. I mean, okay. um, they are used abominably. I think it's fair to say. I mean, I don't say this as a terribly woke person myself, but the Indian population, I think, in 25 years fell from. See, I'm very ready with the stats today, Tom. They, uh, if the Indian population fell from 150,000 to fewer than 30,000. So yeah. an astronomical decline. So, you know, when you go to California, you don't, now you don't think of it as a place. We the Indian sort of Indian presence in California survives in a sort of new agey way, I suppose. Mm. But in every other respect, it's almost been completely eradicated, hasn't it? Much as it has in, say, Argentina or somewhere. But you do, you, you have a continuing Hispanic presence. Yeah, yeah, which is true to its history, and, and so that's there. And then you also get increasing numbers of people coming from Europe of whom I guess the, the most celebrated are those who helped set up Hollywood. Have I got that right? Yeah, you've also, but you have missed out the Asians. So the Asian oh, the Chinese is, is really important. China, China. Chinese and Japanese, actually. Yeah. Um, so they come in the 19th, late 19th century, early 20th century, indentured labor and so on, Chinese. And uh, they're helping of, to build railroads as well. So the, the, Yeah. The, what is it, the Central Pacific or something like yes, that? Yes, all that kind um, of stuff. Uh, these, these huge railroads. I mean, you know, they are, we think of, I mean, gosh, it's, this is the great thing we do in California. When you're doing British history, you think of the age of the railways and this amazing story. And then you turn it to America and the, the sort of conquest of the West. And the canvas is just a thousand times larger. And they're building these massive railroads, you know, thousands and thousands of laborers again. And very- kind of racing each other, aren't they? So people coming from the East, people going from the West. Exactly. And people and that, just, and- all the Chinese laborers are just being flogged to death again. Pretty because, much. And that yeah. transforms the state as well, Tom, because. What you have, I mean, it, I, I love this because it's one of these details of these tiny, insignificant. I mean, I used to sort of, when I was writing books about Britain in the 50s, you know, I'd basically travel the land talking to people about the invention of the washing machine and how important it was. And this is a similar level. So it's the invention of the refrigerated uh, railroad car. And that transforms California because it becomes a massive farm for the East Coast. So right. these colossal farms, I mean, just, you know, mind-bogglingly large to a European um, in the sort of interior of California, um, where all these sort of legions of, of, of sort of migrant workers are producing the cornucopia of fruits and vegetables and they're sticking them in the refrigerated cars and then off they go to the East Coast. I mean, that completely transforms the Californian economy. And also the image of California, I guess, because it's, it's from that point on, it's seen as this kind of paradise full of, of plenty, which yeah. I guess is, you know, runs to this day. So sun-kissed, um, sun-made. They're yeah. both Edwardian, what we would call Edwardian brands. And before that, they've invented jeans, haven't they? Yeah, in the Levi's. gold rush. But also, i tell you what I didn't... Um, so there's a, there's a brilliant historian of California. He's one of the great historians called Kevin Starr. And he's written this whole sequence of books about California, sort of decade by decade almost. Um, with dreams, is, is always in the title, so it's kind of embattled dreams, the dream endures and so on. And one of the things he talks about is how, at that moment, California is... It becomes almost like a kind of grand tour destination. So you go there 
from the East Coast on the train, which you couldn't do before. Um, and you go there for health reasons or for, it becomes a kind of Mediterranean of America, you know, mm -hmm. health and blue skies. And that's at the point at which people start going to Southern California and you get this Spanish revival architecture and people build hotels. And so even and at that Getty point, building, uh, fake Roman villas. Yeah, exactly. All of that stuff. It becomes this starts to become this fantasy world. Once you've got the railroad, you can bring people in on sort of they're going on, you know, health retreats and all that stuff. We should probably take a break. But before we do that, and you talk about dreams, you talk about fantasy. I think we should talk about the beginning of Hollywood, which in a way is why everybody across the world has California in their dreams and their imaginings. So yeah. tell me about the beginnings of Hollywood. Why is the film industry where it is it's there's actually the, the 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 honest reason is so banal you know you'll be disappointed it's the weather um no, that's you know so, living in england i can <laughs> I, can, <laughs> I can totally accept that so people start i think they start going round about the 1910s or so in a big way to hollywood and they go there i think well there's two actually reasons one is um the weather and the other is to escape regulators so if they were doing a lot of filming around sort of new york new jersey but the the sort of the body that was regulating the film industry and was basically you know checking up on them and charging them for this and that and the other, which was called the trust, was based in New Jersey, and they just wanted to get away and they wanted to go somewhere as sunny so they could do they could build sets outside because they've got tons of space and they wanted weather. You know, if you're filming in with that equipment, sort of Edwardian era equipment, and it rains, you know, you're buggered basically. Yeah. So you need to guarantee good weather to do external filming and light, of course. Yeah. So it's kind of perfect. Um, they go there and then it becomes that classic thing, you know, critical mass. There's a momentum to go there. Charlie Chaplin and, you know, Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks and co pitch up there. And then suddenly it, it just becomes the place. The and, place to do it. And at that moment, at that precise moment, the European rival European film industries are destroyed by the First World War. Um, so they're not producing films in anything like the same numbers. And suddenly Hollywood is where it's happening and it becomes industrialized. They buy up all the cinemas and it becomes kind of the industry is vertically integrated. And, you know, by the end of the 1920s, the idea of challenging Hollywood is unthinkable. I'm talking about Chilton Hundred's question is California where history goes to die. I mean, it's also the, the, the building of Ersatz history. Because as you say, you can build huge, great sets out in the desert. So they're still there, aren't they? All the kind of recreations of Babylon yeah. and, and Cecil Babylon B. DeMille's very, epics and things. They're very I mean, they're, famous. They're, yes. Yeah, they're the great ones, aren't they? And actually, this is jumping forward a little bit, but that's what Disneyland is. Disneyland is a perfect metaphor for 20th century California. Because Disneyland's built, I mean, we are jumping here, but it's 1955. And you go in and it's Main Street, USA. So it's an idealized vision. Of, of a small town America that even at that moment is disappearing. And then the, some of the lands, you know, it's frontier land, which is the kind of American Western, this, this image of the conquest of the West and Tomorrowland, which is an image of an idealized future. And that in a sense is why Disneyland works so well as a kind of, as a symbol of California, because that's all that California is. It's an idealized America. It's got a, it's got a kind of invented past and it's got a kind of imagined future. That is a perfect note, I think on which to have a word from our sponsors. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History. We are California Dreaming, and um, we're going to kick off the second half with a question from Nicholas Rogers AM, who asks, how much is the development of California and its major cities, especially Los Angeles, 
linked to water, irrigation, and the resulting politics. So, Dominic, that's the, I mean, that's the stuff, as is ever the case with California, both of hardcore political history, you know, and of Hollywood, isn't it? That's yeah, it is. It's Chinatown, isn't it? It's yeah. the story of the great film, um, film noir, Chinatown, 1974. Um, yes. Yeah, so, a lot of California is pretty arid. <laughs> and um, basically the story, there's this colossal growth in the 20th century. I mean, astronomical growth in population, urbanization. And places like Los Angeles in particular, I mean, that's a city where there shouldn't really be a city because there's not enough water. So what they did, they have these huge, big public projects at the beginning of the 20th century to bring water through a series of dams and reservoirs and stuff to the city to irrigate the land to, you know, basically so that they can turn it into this metropolis. And I think in LA's case, it's the Owens River that they, that they divert and basically devastate. Um, and yeah, there's tons of corruption obviously associated with these big projects, but it's an age that believes in, you know, it's an age when people believe they have a right to sort of tame nature. I mean, that's part of the story of California. It's both a natural paradise. And it is an object lesson in what humanity does to kind of unspoiled nature. So you have these amazing national parks and the redwoods and, you know, Yosemite and Big Sur and these fantastic landscapes. But at the same time, you have LA. I mean, I like LA and, you know, a lot of people hate it. I really like LA, but it's, it is this kind of, you know, it's a, it's a terribly polluted, it's a symbol of, you know, man's, um, abuse of, the natural world, isn't it? It's it's also uh, we, we talked about Paris as as a cry as a city famous for its criminals with Agnès Poirier, but yeah. there's a sense. Of, I mean, L.A. as well with London, I guess, is one of the great cities for crime. So yeah, because of film noirs and, and yeah, uh, Raymond Chandler uh, yeah. and 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 then I guess Gretchen James Hamilton. Elroy. Yeah, yes. Um, so in James Elroy's novels, he's always talking about the Zoot Suit riots. And yeah. I'm ashamed to say I've never actually, I've never actually looked up what a zoot suit is or what the zoot suit riots are. Um, I, are you are you able to answer that for me? I can answer it. Whether the listeners will um, think I know anything about it is a different matter, but I can give an answer. Uh, so California goes into the um, Second World War quite troubled for obvious reasons. It's very vulnerable to Japanese attack, and there are Japanese invasion scares. Japanese yes. bombing scares all Steven the time. Steven Spielberg's one big flop, 1941. 1941, yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah, there was this very famous occasion when people thought they were being bombed by the, the Japanese or Japanese planes were attacking and they weren't. Um, but, you know, there's tons of tens of thousands of Japanese Americans in California. They all get put in camps, mm-hmm. basically moved away from the coast. And there's a real sense of kind of, you know, simmering tension. I think partly Paranoia. also... Because California was the main, one of the main bases for the US Navy. So there are tons of, you know, they're, they're, at any given moment, there are tons of Navy servicemen, young men, but there are also lots of Mexican Americans who are not in the Navy, um, who are sort of, you know, sort of wandering about in their zoot suits. And their zoot suits for British listeners, um, they're sort of the American equivalent to teddy boys to an extent. So they're wearing right. these kind of extravagant, um, sort of, yeah, they're sort of Edwardian costumes, fancy hairdos. They're very dandyish. And they're sort of, and you can just imagine the scene. You know, they, these guys are sort of swaggering down the street in, in in what we might say is a classic kind of teenage young man way, but to in the sort of racialized world of 1940s California, 
the the US Navy guys and the Marines and stuff say, oh, who are these Mexicans walking in their sort of swaggering way? This is how Mexicans behave. It's very bad. They're stealing our women, blah, 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 blah. And so you get these riots, these, um, and the, you know, the sort of the, the level of violence is, is disputed because of course, as was the way newspapers reported it, um, again, in quite sort of rate, what you see is racialized ways. But there was a real, you know, worry. I mean, the US sort of high command that their troops would run out of control. They're basically roaming the streets, beating up Mexicans. Stri- and interestingly, they strip them of their clothes and particularly their trousers. Right. Um, it's this sort of sign, you know, they're obviously trying to emasculate them in some way. And it's a real, there's a, you know, there's a lot of damage. There's a lot of, um, I don't know the, um, I don't have no offhand the sort of the toll of injuries or, or deaths, but it is a you know it's a I think nobody died actually. So, um, but, but I think it's it's a very serious um, sort of insurrection. And so 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 racial tensions are, are one of the themes, particularly in LA, I guess. Yeah, I've always been. You get um, Watts in Rodney King, and, Rodney King ninety two, yeah. um, and it's not, but it's not always black and white. I mean, li- I mean, when I say black and white, I mean African Americans and and sort of European. Americans. So a lot of it is to do with um, Hispanics or Japanese or Chinese. I mean, that's one of the things that makes California such a, a rich and interesting subject is the diverse. It is so, so diverse. Yeah. And, and now obviously is the, as the, is the sort of absolute, um, I mean, I don't want to say the melting box is such a cliche, but it obviously is a, it, it feels as a European visitor now extraordinarily Hispanic, um, in a way that some Americans have always found, um, makes them anxious so that's one theme um there's another one that's highlighted by pat roberts which i know is <laughs> right up your street and how has california gone from the most republican state the home of nixon and reagan to the most democratic so now we would think of of california as absolutely you know the essence of of democratic yeah politics so, so maybe wacky. even further to yeah. the left yeah. the, 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 than the democrats but um you know, as as Pat says, it it's it was the base of Nixon, it was the base of Reagan, it was the base of Schwarzenegger. Um, yeah, but they're all well. The the California was always very Republican. I think for reasons that would appeal to you, Tom, given your own um, much stated interests. So it was a particular kind of Christians actually that uh, that went to California. Not, so nothing to do with dinosaurs. They were no, sadly, or Romans. Um, no. So when California massively expanded, the people who went there. The majority of them, I guess, or at least a very large plurality, were um, white Protestants from the American Midwest. So, that, so actually, Nixon is a very good example of this. So his dad, I think, came from Ohio, and they're Quakers. So these guys go to California, and they they are they are sort of sympathetic to a kind of evangelical religious tradition. So I don't know if you've ever been to. There's an amazing building called the Crystal Cathedral in Los Angeles, which is a great symbol of this. This great. Mm-hmm. Um, shining glass, the world's largest glass building, an evangelical church. I mean, California is full of evangelical churches. So these guys all went, and, and that tradition was very Republican. So right. white, Protestant, middle class, that was the bedrock of the Republican Party. And Nixon himself incarnated that. So he's from a Quaker family. He believes in kind of sobriety and thrift and all these sort of what he sees as traditional Republican virtues. And people always voted for them um, up to the 60s. And right. then... Then the change happens. Then California, there's a huge demographic change. So California does become much more diverse. Those people start to lose their, so they're still there now, but they're, I guess, outnumbered. But Um, the sixties. Yeah. Um, hate Ashbury. 
Are you yeah. going to San Francisco, flowers in your hair, all that kind of stuff? What's precipitating that? Because in a, in a way, California, San Francisco in particular, becomes the epicenter of the 60s, doesn't it? It does. But I guess that's because... So California has massively expanded from... Not just from the gold rush, but it's massively expanded due to the war and due to the growth of huge university complexes and things and electronics. People, people like um, Hewlett Packard are trading at this point. You know, so you have this, I mean, it really is the military industrial complex in action. So you have all these people that have moved there in the forties and fifties. And these are now their kids who are involved in all, who are driving all that. So they're middle class kids by and large at universities like Berkeley and Stanford and so on and the University of Southern California in LA. And there's a lot of them. They're very affluent. They're idealistic. The Vietnam War has kicked off. The civil rights movement is going. So that drives a lot of that. I they're think. rich enough not to have to worry about jobs. Yeah. They're rich enough they're to be able to grow their beards. Of course. And, yeah. Yeah. That's why, actually, I, I bet you if you go into the sort of demographic sort of background of people who are in communes and people who are hip, I mean, there's a lot of them who are, in Britain, we would call them trustafarians. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that the, it's the affluence of California. It's extraordinary wealth and, and possibility and the sense of limitless freedom in the 60s that is a product of that big sort of demographic change and economic change. That drives the sort of Beach Boise and then the Jefferson Airplane-ish kind of side of California but, life in the late And that then produces its own backlash in the form of Ronald Reagan. And it darkens, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. And the, the end of the 60s, say Charles Manson. And- yeah, and California itself, I think that, and probably lots of listeners to this podcast will agree that when you think of California, you do think, as you said, Tom, of sort of 60s California. And there is a sense in which after the 60s, when you get into the 70s, the wheels slightly begin to, to come off. There's a sort of, there's a greater negativity. Yeah, we're well, very it, conscious I'm- of that downside now. In, I mean, in, in the seventies, I suppose the great cultural icon that comes from San Francisco is Dirty Harry. Um, a, a, a vigilante. <laughs> Yeah. Republican voting cop in the form of Clint Eastwood, who then himself goes on to become Republican mayor of Carmel, right? Yeah, he does. Clint Eastwood does. And Reagan. I mean, Reagan, Reagan. is a Hollywood, yeah. former Democrat, you know, um, who becomes governor of California by basically saying, you know, law and order, let he, he's going to wash hip, forcibly wash hippies and make them shave. And that's in the seventies. This is, is 66. 66. So, oh, okay, so that early. California is always ahead. Of right. the rest of the United States, and indeed, arguably, and we've got tons of questions about this, ahead of the rest of the Western world. And I think California was ahead and still is because of its affluence. Um, and, and because it was, it's the, it's the home of entertainment, but also of technology. So technology, you know, computers in particular. So the seven, we're talking about the 70s, Dirty Harry. There's an argument, isn't there? When you look back in Californian history, the, the thing that will strike you about the 70s is things like Apple. So Steve Jobs and, you know. Yes. Uh, and they still, it's so telling that Apple still, although so many of their, basically everything now comes from China or Taiwan, but they will still have, because they assemble it and send it out from California, they still have them made by Apple in California. And that California badge is so important to Apple's branding, isn't it? That's what you feel you're buying with an Apple computer or with an iPhone. You're buying the future. Absolutely. And, and of course, we would now, from our perspective, see that, you know, it's Bill Gates and Steve Jobs who are the key figures in, I guess, post-war, the whole of post-war Californian history, really. Because it's, yeah. it's, it's the world we live in now, the wired world, is, is invented in California, essentially. 
Yeah, and I think it probably could only have been invented in California, um, and the, the you know, because partly because of the military, because that's the place that's been chosen for so much military spending because of the navy bases and stuff in World War Two. Partly because um, technology has has been radio and TV uh, uh, firms have been working for California for decades. Obviously because of Hollywood, and then you have the the growth of Silicon Valley in the seventies and eighties, and so many universities. I mean, California massively invested in universities in the twentieth century. So Stanford, Berkeley, the big and the big state universities, and so on. Um, because of that, you have this kind of all this sort of energy. Um, which produces people like Steve Jobs and so on. And then it becomes, I mean, now they have, of course, Nick Clegg. They've given us <laughs> the Apple computer well, <laughs> and we've given them Nick Clegg. So, you know, everybody wins. Well, so I, I, I've got a friend who, um, lives in Silicon Valley and he very kindly took me on a tour around, um, you know, all the Google and yeah. Apple headquarters and things like that. Um, and it basically, it's a, you know, it's a bit like Slough. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> I know that's the, Considering that you know it's it's cultural, it's economic, it's financial power, it it looks incredibly dull. But um, that's the weird thing about it, isn't it? Because sometimes when we've been to California, you know, we'd say, "Oh, wouldn't it be amazing to live here and stuff?" But there is this kind of sense that you're just living in a massive suburb. I mean, I apologise to our Californian listeners. Um, I think we've been very. I think we've been full of praise for California. So it's it's time to to be a bit rude about. Yeah, it. if you lived in LA, if you lived in LA. I mean, I love LA. I like going to LA. I like the sense of, and it is that, that sense of, you know, I'm now an extra in a, in a Hollywood movie. I'm walking around places that I've seen on. It's on. the most exciting place to go. I completely yeah. agree. I mean, it's, if, if you're not, if you're not from California, it, it's, you feel like you're kind of coming home to your own dreams when you, you are, go there. You do. Absolutely. And it is incredible. But then if you sort but, of said, imagine but, living at number 100 and 1000, you know, <laughs> yes. 1128 yes. something drive. Palo Alto. Yeah. And yes. you've got I, this massive house and a pool. I actually wouldn't know what, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. Except that actually, you know, if you're in Silicon Valley, the likelihood is your house isn't going to be that massive. No. So even actually, if you're, even if you're, um, Jeff Bezos is living in the big house and you're living in the shack at the bottom of the road. Well, we looked at, uh, Zuckerberg's house. It was actually yeah. quite, you know, I mean, it's big, but it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't kind of Blenheim Palace or Versailles big. Yeah. Uh, and I guess that, um, that one of, the, one of the questions that, that hangs over California now is that it's essentially, it's created the future twice. So it's created the future with Hollywood and then it's created the future with, computing, internet, all that kind of stuff. But um, the, the question then is, would it be able to do it again? Or has it become too stratified, too much the victim of its own success? Are those at the top so wealthy yeah. and that, that essentially there's no way in now for those at the bottom? Would a well, Steve I've... Jobs now be able to make his way and start something up from scratch? And Well, that's a good question because I think um, one of the issues with California is how it has become an object lesson in the rich and the poor. And there is a real, it's something that is very noticeable as a British visitor to California. I'm not claiming that Britain is, is, is perfect by any means, but the, the, the shoddiness of some of the public infrastructure. So for example, Dick of Axe, Dick of Axe, this question, right? How is it that a very rich and cultured state also has massive homelessness problems where I've been told that human excrement, you you love a bit of human excrement is common to find in places like California. Opportunity yep. for a callback to parallels with Paris street urination. Um, so you can be rude about Paris again. And yeah, so I have seen people urinating in the streets in Paris. I've never seen them doing it in California, <laughs> but Dick of Axe is, is onto something that there is a huge homelessness problem. Um, uh, you know, places like San Francisco have become very much 
uh, a city of the haves and have-nots. But also there's generally an infrastructure problem. So California has constant problems with its schools being hideously underfunded. Now, part of this, Tom, and this will not surprise you coming from a well-known Marxist historian, um, the answer to this is very simple. Californians don't pay enough tax. And they haven't paid enough tax since the 1970s. Honestly, you and your left-wing opinions. And one reason for that is that they have a very unusual kind of politics that definitely will appeal to you with your Yes, customer. well, Simon Girdleston coming yeah. in again with some questions. To what extent is California the product of its strange constitution, direct ballot amendments, introduced laws that are often very liberal, e.g. on free speech or conservative law and order, and all exist at the same time and are impossible to change without another plebiscite? Plebiscitary politics. That is, California has been doing that for decades, and it is a real I think a problem. They have basically, we often ask in Britain, don't we, what's if, if politics turned into a colossal reality show and people were voting about everything, they're invited to vote. That's basically what California politics is. They have propositions. You'll have often seen them, people, um, our British will have seen them report in the newspapers, Proposition 12, Proposition 13, you know, Proposition 7 to change, you know, uh, uh, to, to basically limit often to limit the powers of government. The most famous one is Proposition 13 from the 1970s, which limited how much you could charge in property taxes. Right. And so that's why. And so that's then the, the, the root of the problem. So they don't pay enough tax. I mean, and it's very hard to argue to persuade people that they ought to pay more tax. And, and okay. I think, yeah. So, and there's also an eccentricity in California politics. There's always been... Um, Governor Moonbeam. Uh, yeah. Governor Moonbeam was Jerry Brown, obviously Schwarzenegger. Now, the weird thing about Schwarzenegger was he's actually a very moderate Republican. So he's actually quite in tune with California's political history. But of course, you know, former Austrian bodybuilder, the Terminator, you know, uh, there's a slight sense of owning California and you have mm -hmm. this sort of celebrity political culture. Well, I, I'm glad you mentioned the Terminator because of course, one other thing that we should mention about California perhaps before we finish is uh, the fact that it's built on the San Andreas Fault. And yeah. therefore it's, it's the, you know, it's, it's like building Pompeii on the slopes of Mount Vesuvius, except that, Californians know <laughs> that the big one may be coming. Uh, and I, I speak as, as someone whose wife was in uh, Palo Alto in the 1990 earthquake. Really? She was living in a trailer. Gosh, um, that's which glamorous. Was, which that's... was the best best place to be. So yeah, I can imagine. She just stood in the middle of the trailer, she and her friends, and they, they, were, they were fine. Um, and th there's a sense, isn't there, in which... Um, Thanks to Hollywood and thanks to the threat of, of, of earthquakes and the, you know, the various disastrous earthquakes that have hit San Francisco and LA and all these incredibly famous cityscapes that, um, California, although it stands in for a kind of utopian vision of the future is also the most dystopian place Definitely. on earth. Definitely. This is California offers us a vision of, of the horrors that may be coming. So whether yeah. it's Blade Runner, probably the most influential vision of the future that's ever been made, um, or whether it's all the aliens and cyclones and monsters from the sea that periodically wipe California out. That So we, we've got a question from Stephen Jensen, friend of the show. Has California become a kind of bellwether state for the rest of the US culturally, economically, politically, technologically, demographically, showing how the rest of the country might look 10 to 20 years in the future? I'm sure that's true. I don't know. But I think definitely it serves as a, a kind of um, a template for how the rest of us in the world kind of imagine the future. It is. And I'm glad you mentioned Blade Runner because, of course, Philip K. Dick is a great Californian writer and these sort of dystopian visions of the future. Um, and, and I mentioned the historian Kevin Starr earlier on, so people who are interested in California should definitely check out his books. Uh, his emphasis on dreams, but he also talks a lot about nightmares. 
Um, and I don't know that there's ever been a place, I mean, you'll know better than me, whether the, the people in the classical world or something ever had a sense of a particular place that embodied the sort of possibility and the peril of human civilization. So California has now become, I think actually in some ways more strongly dystopian than utopian, don't you? That um, we have a sort of a fear of what California may represent rather than a, I mean, of course, we still have the sort of Hollywood romantic yearning. Don't you think the fear is stronger now? I, I suppose because we've lived through a a dystopian age period, yeah. um, we've, you know, the pandemic is the kind of thing that, that hits California in, in Hollywood films. Uh, and yeah. that's what everyone said is, oh, it's just like a movie. Um, yeah. And it's a movie because people in California have, have, have been giving portrayals of the future that's exactly like that. Um, what what's and- about if there's ever been a place like California before? Do you think there's ever been anywhere like it? Oh, I think, um, I mean, what, you know, I said one of the things that, that I, I found bizarre about the lack of relative lack of swagger about these great Silicon Valley beer moths is that absolutely, you know, Alexandria or Rome or Babylon or Baghdad or whatever. Um, these were great cultural centers that where, where people who lived there felt that they were at the center of the world and they wanted to create monuments that would demonstrate that. Um, in a sense, that that's kind of what is lacking in the infrastructure, the built up spaces of California. The, the lots of the most famous buildings are ersatz buildings. So yeah. whether it's the, 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 the Hearst castle or the Getty Villa or whatever, these are, you know, the, the, the very style of architecture is kind of pastiche uh, across a lot of LA or yeah, California. True. So even um, Spanish but, revival, kind of colonial revival yeah, stuff is pastiche. So. But the real, the, you know, the real monuments to, to Californian wealth and power is it, it's virtual. I mean, it's online. It's it's what we're doing now. We're, we're recording this using iPhones, using Zoom on computers um, in a way that would have been unimaginable even 10 years ago, even, well, I guess even two years ago, perhaps. But we can do that because, in a sense, what we're doing is is Californian. And that's the monument that it's raised, I think. Yeah. That's a great note on which to end, I think. We're all living in a Californian world. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, we need to get back to um, much more distant periods, I think. So next week, Tom will be having a podcast just about, uh. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're doing, aren't we doing, uh, we're doing Hitler, I think. No, we are doing Hitler. We're not doing, we're doing Hitler. That's so that really is dystopian. So that's, um, and we've got, uh, who are we doing? We're doing Hitler with Ian Ker- Sir Ian Kershaw. We're doing Hitler with, of course we that are. That is a but- very, exciting moment for our podcast because i would say partly because he gave me my first academic job i would say he has a very good claim to be britain's greatest living historian so i'm very much looking forward to that and definitely our leading biographer of hitler so <laughs> definitely something yeah. to look forward to but before Syrian and hitler tom we have magna carta magna carta yes of course we do with professor ted valance from the university of roehampton uh, a friend of ours who will be telling us whether Magna Carta died in vain, um, whether it, Magna Carta matters. Uh, he's got a blog called Magna Carta Balls, or at least he had a blog. So it gives he, you a clue. There is no one better. <laughs> yeah. Tune in on Thursday to hear that and tune in next week to hear Ian Kershaw on Hitler. And uh, we'll have loads more on that. So we will see you soon. Thanks a lot. Cheerio. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, 
and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Thank you.